Proverbs chapter 29, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Proverbs, picking things up in chapter 29. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles, just wave and they'll get one into your hands and then you can read along as well as listen and the Word has double the... input into your life and double the impact, and certainly we want all of that. Chapter 29, verse 1. He who is often or repeatedly rebuked hardens his neck. He rebels or he resists that rebuke. The person who does that will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And so this speaks of the man who continues, or the man or woman who continues in sin despite the repeated warnings of other people in their lives, and uh, a person who does that is suddenly going to be destroyed. And uh, certainly, if that's true of the warnings of men, it's obviously very true of the Holy Spirit. The Lord never warns us about something um, unless there's a reason that we need to hear it. He never... God, God never talks just to be talking. <laughs> Some of us are characterized by that. But God is never like that. So when he says something to us, it's important and always important to heed his voice, listen to it, respond to his voice. Because if it's a call to repentance that he has upon our lives, to so say, hey, listen, you're going in the wrong direction. Turn away from that. Don't do that. That's not a relationship that I have for you. All the different ways that he speaks to us then uh, if, if we fail to uh, repent and the choices between repentance and destruction, then uh, judgment is going to be the final end of things. And so uh, best not to uh, resist instruction and certainly not God's uh, endeavors to speak into our life. When the righteous are in authority, in other words, they're in control of the government, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. They groan because of the oppression and because of the corruption of a wicked ruler over a nation. And so uh, one of the things that this tells us is that it's okay for Christians to run for public office. And how are we going to get righteous people into positions in our form of government unless people... Uh, run for office. And then, then it also speaks to us of the fact that it's important to vote for people that um, have a righteous, a righteousness and a moral code that comes uh, from the Word of God, that that's what forms them. I don't understand at all. I don't mean uh, to offend anyone unnecessarily, but I have never understood the idea that Uh, many Christians have that it's somehow a secular activity to vote for righteous people. The Bible says that we are, Jesus spoke and said, we are salt, we are light in this world. We want to use every opportunity to influence the world for righteousness that we can. And so uh, politics, oh boy, have you seen the approval ratings of politicians today, certainly on a national level, really down in the bottom of the barrel. But that isn't a reflection on the institution of government or whether we should be involved or not. We don't put our hope in government. We don't put our hope in leaders. But um, it's a lot better to have righteous leaders in office than unrighteous leaders. It also teaches us that the morals of leaders in a nation are important, that those morals end up affecting uh, the nation, and so what a a politician is in private, what his moral convictions or her moral convictions are, is uh, very very important. I remember when President Clinton was the president, and he got involved in some sexual immorality in the White House, and uh, people immediately rose to his defense and said, "Listen, what a person is privately, you know, has no bearing upon their ability." Uh, to fulfill the demands of the office. Oh, boy, are you kidding me? That you, If you can find a person that can compartmentalize that well, then you've really found somebody. No, what we are in our core morally or in terms of righteousness or unrighteousness 
that's going to spill out into every other part of our life, the decisions that we make. That doesn't stay in just a little private area uh, of, of our life. And so um, it ends up permeating. And the, and the higher the office, the more important the godly character of the individual is. And so we don't want to buy this lie that's going around today that a person, what they are in private has nothing to do with what they are in public. What I am in private is what I am in public. What I am in private is what I am. Not what I am in public. <laughs> I can put a show on for X number of hours on any given day or any given week to fool people. But what we are in private. And so when a wicked man rules, the people groan and uh, there's a bit of groaning going on on a lot of levels. Uh, even today. And so in, in contrast to this, the uh, proverb also teaches us that people will respond to good government and rejoice uh, when it is in place. Whoever loves wisdom, and the person who loves wisdom is going to be a person who doesn't say, well, you know, I just love wisdom. I like to memorize it, and I like to collect it, and put it over here by my butterfly collection. A person who loves wisdom in the proverb, what it's talking about is someone who demonstrates their love for wisdom by living a life in obedience uh, to the Lord's word. They live a wise life. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots uh, wastes his wealth. And so uh, the one son makes his father rejoice and the other son breaks his father's heart by wasting his life. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a son or a daughter that uh, makes our parents proud. And that's just so old-fashioned and so gone in our culture now. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's a commendable person who looks and says, you know, my actions, my decisions are going to affect probably more than anyone else other than my spouse and my children will be my parents. And to realize the quality of their life is determined so often. Certainly their joy, the fullness of joy, is determined by the quality of life that I live. And there's nothing wrong, and it's a blessing for parents to lay their head down on the pillow and when they think of you to say, I'm proud that that one is my son and that one is my daughter. Old-fashioned, I don't know that they could make a movie out of this particular proverb or if anybody would go and see it. I think they'd be surprised. People would. These noble themes of the Bible. People are hungering for something that's righteous and holy and, and uh, noble, just as it's always been. Uh, in history, they're craving it. But it's, a, it's wonderful to bless the heart of our parents with, by living a godly life. The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. And so this proverb, like many before, it speaks of the stability uh, that justice produces in a society and how unstable a government becomes when bribes become the means of uh, doing business, appointments being made in government and all of this, that kind of a nation is on its way down. You see how many nations in the world are that? We talk about banana republics or whatever kind of you know label is attached to them. But once corruption grabs a hold of a nation, it gets a start and it becomes systemic in that nation, it takes a revolution in order to overturn that, and a, usually a very bloody revolution. So best for it uh, not to start. It's, uh, bribery is like a little leaven. It ends up leavening, leavening the whole lump, and it's dangerous stuff. Uh, and I'm always glad when they uh, run these sting operations and they catch these uh, congressmen and senators and whoever they might be, whether on a state level or a local level or a federal level, and they catch them uh, selling out for their own self-gain and for money because that is a dangerous thing to introduce into government. A man who flatters his neighbor. Oh, that shirt looks nice on you. Boy, your hair looks terrific. That's a little weightier than that. 
A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And so this refers to um, the kind of person who will uh, only say to other people what is flattering or favorable, even when it's not true about them. That's that's all they'll say, rather than telling the truth to somebody that uh, they need to hear when they're headed uh, for danger. And so uh, a neighbor in the ancient world, the way that families were and the way that society operated, um, uh, a neighbor was more than just a person who lived on the other side of the fence. This was someone who you had a relationship with. So if nobody in your family would tell you the truth, Um, You were dependent upon a neighbor speaking the truth into your life. used to be that way uh, not too many, a generation or two ago, that kids, you'd run them out Saturday morning, they'd go out the door early in the morning, come back when it was dark at the summertime and all, and uh, if you got into any trouble in your neighborhood, every family in that neighborhood felt that they were your parents. I'm going to tell your mom and dad, you know. So it was like there was that kind of an influence. So if you were going to, like, set anything on fire or whatever, you had to go to another neighborhood. But there was that that kind of, um, and some of you did evidently <laughs> on that. So that's the way that it worked. And uh, the idea, of course, is we take it into the ultimate in terms of spiritual application has to do with the gospel and to, you know, to merely have neighbors for years and years and years and have a chit-chat relationship with them and then never speak to them of their need for Christ and the danger that they're in, uh, but always talking about good things because we don't want to offend them or uh, create any kind of a problem like that. I'm not saying to put them in a headlock and force them, you know, but uh, a door opens sooner or later and uh, the importance of, of speaking the truth to uh, to our neighbors and not just wanting to be liked more than doing what's best for them. By transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. And so this teaches us that sin is a trap. It is always a trap. Sin is always a trap. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's bad, as the old saying goes. And that's the truth about it. One of the bad things about sin is it's always got a hook. It's always got a big hook. It's always addictive. It's always uh, destructive. And so it doesn't always appear that way at the start, but sooner or later a person realizes, wow, I have been taken captive uh, by this uh, sin. Now, thankfully, aren't you thankful that Jesus was born into human history? I certainly am. Because Jesus can set anyone free of any addiction to any sin, to any past. But here is this warning that sin is a trap. And uh, the beautiful second part, but the righteous sings and rejoices. And, and the idea is that when you're righteous or you're living a life the way that God wants us to live, we don't have to worry about traps. All we know is the joy of living free and enjoying a free life, the blessings of all of that. And um, as I say somewhat regularly, Christianity isn't the easiest life, but it is the, the very best life. We can walk through life and I never have to be looking over my shoulder for some trap that's going to catch me uh, because of some sin that I've got introduced into my life. And uh, when a, a person is living deliberately in sin or an evil man, that's constantly on their mind. It really is, in one, in one respect, a wonderful respect, a carefree life that we live as Christians. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. And so a righteous person, you say, well, what's one of the definitions of a righteous person? A righteous person will always take an active interest in the poor, will always want to make sure that the poor are 
well treated, that they are fairly treated and protect their rights within society or their rights within a, a given situation or the court systems or whatever it is and uh, from people who are trying to take advantage of them because of their powerless position in life. The wicked have no concern for the poor. I mean, they talk about it because it gets them money or it gets them votes or whatever. But the, the poor are always much worse off uh, under uh, wicked leadership than they ever are under righteous uh, leadership. And there's always going to be poor. The poor, Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. There's an always, he's speaking about the fact there's always an opportunity to do good to poor people um, in his name. And that's the way it's going to be all the way to the end. That's why we knew communism would never take over the whole wide world. Um, because the, there's always going to be poor, as Jesus said. And, and so this concern for the poor is always to mark our lives uh, as Christians. Um, scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. And so the scoffer here speaks of the person who inflames the passions of other people, their anger and their feeling of rebellion and all. They agitate people and incite them to uh, violence and to rioting uh, in order to solve a problem, even setting their own uh, city on fire. And we see that every so often in our own history, in the, in the history around the world and all. Someone will agitate a group of people, they'll get and they'll set a whole city on, on uh, fire. And there is a certain kind of person who is uh, good at agitation. They're good at... Uh, creating a rebellion. They're good at overthrowing something. But once they've overthrown it, they don't know how to then govern what they've taken over. So there are professional agitators and, and this anarchists and this kind of um, movement that is even somewhat uh, quasi-formal, uh, uh, you know, in terms of organization within uh, even our country. And uh, but they're the people that they want a violent solution to the problem. They don't want a peaceful solution to uh, problems. And, you know, whatever the problems might be, they still have to be addressed and resolved after you burnt your house down and after you burnt your city down to the ground. What good does it do to burn the city down? What is that going to accomplish? Still got to fix the problem. You still have to be, you know, uh, uh, resolution oriented on things. And so uh, the proverb teaches us that during unsettled times, uh, get behind the restrained person who wants to peacefully resolve uh, the situation, not the person who wants to escalate the situation uh, into violence. And, you know, we may see this in our, uh, if the Lord tarries in our lifetimes. I mean, you may see tremendous civil unrest. I'm not prophesying at the moment. Um, but there's a lot of pushing. There's a lot of shoving. All something has to do is become scarce, some particular item, some injustice that comes down from the government or um, people realize how much money the federal government has been spending and that that's not going to be forgiven, but you're going to have to pay that back. And ultimately what that's going to mean and the outrage that people will feel over that. And so these proverbs, uh, there's a very thin veneer of civilization over the heart of people uh, apart from the Lord. And so uh, important proverb, uh, maybe even more important than we realize in the hour in which we live. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. So when it talks about this fool, this foolish man, it talks about an arrogant, hardened fool, uh, one who is dominated by his emotions, 
rather than uh, dominated by logic or by reason. And so this is the kind of person that thinks with their emotions rather than with their mind. And when you try to reason with him or you try to get him to see things logically, uh, he or she always responds emotionally by either raging at you or laughing at you. So the idea is you cannot win an argument with a purely emotional person. Uh, If you try to do it, it will never result in peace, but in an argument or they will uh, laugh in your face. Verse 10, the bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. And so it's a fact of life that honest people are hated by the wicked and persecuted by the wicked. That goes on all around the world uh, today. And uh, a blameless life, the proverb teaches us, is a reproach to the wicked because what the righteous person does is it bring the righteous person uh, and the person who lives a righteous life, um, they, they make the wicked accountable for their actions. Because when you live a righteous life, it communicates to the whole world that that life can be lived. And when a person is living an unrighteous life, then that makes them responsible for the life that they're living. And boy, if there's anything that our culture does not like in its current form, is being held responsible for its actions and for its decisions. And so... What the wicked typically want to do is to put out the light of the righteous to remove that conviction and the responsibility that their life then places on other people. And uh, we think about uh, Lazarus, uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the uh, Jewish religious leaders sought not only to kill Jesus, uh, why, do, why would anyone want to kill Jesus? What did he do? What sin? Jesus said to them, which of you convicts me of sin? We don't know how long the silence was. But Jesus was the one who broke the silence because only he can break that silence because no one can convict him or accuse him of sin. So why do they want to put Jesus' light out because of the conviction that his life uh, brought to them, uh, the accountability that it brought, and uh, the threat that it was to them. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders, so you, you can have bloodthirsty men in religion as much as you can have them be completely secular. And they wanted to take and crucify Jesus, kill him, silence his voice, and then because... Lazarus was a work of Jesus, a miracle of Jesus, a testimony to Jesus' power and the truthfulness of what he, want, what he says. They wanted to kill him as well. And the Bible says that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so the uh, unrighteous, the wicked, will always hate the righteous. It's just... Uh, the portion, our portion, and it is a part of uh, a lot of the persecution that goes on of Christians all around the world. Let's put out the light uh, because we have no answer for it other than uh, to snuff it out. Verse 11, a fool vents all his feelings. Wow, is that in the Bible? Sometimes these just get a little closer to home than we're comfortable with, huh? Sometimes you read these Proverbs, other people come to mind. Oh, boy, I wish they were here tonight. (laughs) Then you come to ones like this. Wait a second, the Lord's giving me some names. Hold on a second. (laughs) A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So another uh, condemnation of exploding anger or losing um, our temper And uh, because when we do that, we're going to end up saying something that anything that comes into our mind, we're going to say it. And uh, usually what we say in a situation like that, in a fit of passion, we don't think about the consequences of it. And then you end up paying a, a deep price for it. I mean, you really end up deeply regretting it. 
whether it's spoken to a spouse or to a child or to a parent or to a friend or whatever it might be. And so this praises the control of our emotions. And a wise man feels all the strength of those emotions that um, the fool feels, but he exercises self-control. He thinks about this is going to be the consequence of me going off right now and saying this. And so uh, uh, they hold back from expressing those sinful emotions. And they do it for the sake of God's reputation, for the good of the other person, sometimes just because, boy, if I do this, the whole table's going to get turned because right now she needs to apologize to me. And if I blow up, then I'm going to have to apologize to her or, you know, vice versa in terms of the roles. And so the... Uh, the recognition that this isn't going to be constructive at all. It is important to notice that part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is it's listed in Galatians chapter 5 as self-control. Again, we live in a culture that exercises virtually no self-control. It is disappearing. And what uh, levels of self-control are being exercised by the culture at this moment is almost tied entirely to money. I, can't, I have to be exercise self-control in this area because I've got to have that income. But in terms of exercising self-control beyond that, that's fleeting away. And we need proverbs like this that speak of that. And, there's, and there isn't a moment, again, speaking about the Holy Spirit, there's in any situation where it becomes volatile. You feel all of those emotions. We do. The righteous does as much as the fool does or the disciplined man or woman does as much as the undisciplined person, and to just stop and say, Lord, I ask that you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you give me specifically self-control in this situation right now. And the Lord will always be faithful to answer that prayer. If a ruler pays attention to lies... All of his servants become wicked. So if a ruler rewards lying by listening to those lies and then rewarding people, giving perks and favors to people who tell lies, then all of his servants are going to become uh, liars. People tend to become whatever is being rewarded in that environment. But the, the other side of the coin is also true, that if a ruler uh, takes and uh, rewards uh, honesty, then the people under his authority will gravitate in that direction as well. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. And so the poor man is the poor man. Uh, the oppressor is speaking about the rich man. He owns the poor man. The ancient culture, ancient world uh, slavery was common. And so the oppressor was the person who uh, was rich or owned the slaves, was in a kind of an upper-class uh, situation. And so the proverb warns the oppressor that he owes his sight and his life to God every bit as much as the poor man does. They're both equal in the eyes of the Lord. And so this proverb is a, a gentle but very firm reminder to the powerful, the oppressors, potential oppressors in life, of the fact that in God's eyes, he is no better than the poor man and that he should take that into account in his treatment of the poor. Always a good warning and a good meditation. Verse 14, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. So again, when justice and fairness characterizes a nation, right down to its treatment of the when you have a nation where you can say anyone can go into a courtroom, whether they are poor or whether they are rich or whether they are powerful or powerless or whatever, and they will receive the same fair treatment, then you have a, a kingdom that's founded on something 
uh, solid, and, and so it, it speaks favorably of that. Maybe you've seen pictures outside of courtrooms of a statue of Lady Justice, and she's always got a scale in one hand, a sword in the other, and what does she have across her eyes? She has a blindfold because justice is to be blind. The law is to be applied to everyone equally, and uh, when that gets turned around and money and power starts to buy you a different level of justice than the poor person gets, then you you're, are introducing great instability and corruption into uh, the system. Justice is supposed to be blind and it is supposed to be equal. The rod and the rebuke, and the rebuke is the idea of correcting someone verbally, they give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And so the rod, that speaks of a mm, corporal punishment, whether it's a switch or whether it's a, a big wooden spoon or whatever. Rebuke refers to a verbal correction. And the proverb teaches us that both have a place in imparting wisdom to uh, a child, molding them to become uh, responsible adults. And so the proverb teaches us, as so many of them do, that contrary to modern thought, it is the undisciplined and unfashioned child of uh, a child is allowed to do whatever he or she wants to do that will end up shaming and disgracing their mother. And, of course, the evidence is everywhere around us. Verse 16, when the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. And so when there's an increase in wickedness, what do you have? You have an increase in crime, don't you? Because the wicked are going to uh, express themselves in this way. So an increase in the wicked results in an increase in crime. Uh, what a surprise. So, And what a condemnation it is, again, in our culture that the, uh, concerning all of the nurture and the glorification of wickedness in entertainment, in movies, in music, in books, and all of these kind of things where people come in and they make a fortune uh, advancing wickedness within the culture. They make their money. They get to buy their big whatever. And the, the um, unspeakable price that the culture pays for the advancement uh, of that wickedness within, uh, within the culture. But uh, the upside of the proverb also teaches that righteousness will always outlive wickedness because wickedness always destroys the people that it ensnares. Ultimately, uh, the wicked and wickedness ends up cannibalizing itself and then until there's a swing back to righteousness again. History proves it over and over again. Correct your son and... Uh, he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. So another proverb commending uh, discipline and uh, correcting of our children. And the proverb tells us it's a lot of work. And it is a lot of work to raise a child. I think it's the hardest thing you can do in life, to do it right and to do it fighting the whole culture, to raise a child in the things of the Lord. But it is it does require a lot of work. And, but the result of it is worth it. The proverb tells us, rest and delight to your soul. Uh, the, uh, the flip side of it is, is if we don't invest that in, into our children, that they end up for the rest of our life being a worry and being a headache. And sometimes you can raise them in the Lord and they become that anyway. Uh, but you have no hope of success without raising them and, and committing and investing uh, in their lives. And, of course, the whole idea of, of raising our children the nurture and the admonition of the Lord is not because things will be easy for us later, but because uh, one day um, we will be rewarded and give an account for our faithfulness to that uh, ministry. There is, uh, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. And so this revelation speaks of prophetic revelation. Um, we, it, it speaks of the word of God. And so without possessing God's standard of right and wrong, the proverb teaches us people lose uh, the single greatest restraint that they have 
from going headlong into sin and all of the bondage of it and all the hurt of it and all of the regret of it. And uh, so this is why you see the taking away of the Ten Commandments from the courthouses and the removing of the influence of the Bible within the culture, all of that kind of thing going on. Why is it happening? Because people do not want the restraint that God's Word places upon the practice of sin, the conviction of it. But, but once you remove that, a uh, biblical morality within a nation, now the nation goes headlong into sin, and there's a terrible price that's paid for that. But it also teaches us, on the other hand, that obeying God's law brings happiness and joy and blessing, and that's uh, why teaching God's Word and living God's Word is so needed in a nation. Otherwise, God's definitions of right and wrong will be replaced by definitions that have come, been come up, people have come up with that uh, don't like God, don't like His standard, and again, the, disa- the result is a disaster. Verse 19, a servant will not be corrected by mere words, for though he understands, he will not respond or he will not obey uh, your commands. And so very often, just like uh, raising children, servants or employees need to be disciplined in order to uh, for them to become the employee that they're supposed to be. And as with children, some employees need uh, more than words to get their attention and uh, to bring them in line. And uh, sometimes it requires a pay cut or a demotion or cut in hours or sometimes being outright uh, fired. So it just says that the same principles in raising a child, it goes into the workplace uh, as well. Uh, a, a business environment or a work environment is a living thing because it's made up of people and it requires this, uh, attention just the way that a family requires attention as well. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Well, there's not much hope for a fool, so this must be really bad. So this proverb tells us that there's more hope for a fool to live a quality life than the man who is hasty with his words. He speaks before he listens. He, he uh, in, in his anger or temper, he just says whatever comes into his mind and operates on the basis of his emotion, doesn't think about the impact that his words are going to have on people. That kind of a person is going to do uh, more damage and bring more trials upon himself than uh, even a fool can. And, of course, that's very, very true. Um, you know, verse 20, probably all of us, we don't, maybe we don't live in verse 20, but we've all experienced it enough to know that it's true. And uh, if you're living in verse 20, it's a great one to um, take heed of the instruction there. He who pampers his servant from childhood will have uh, him as a son in the end. And so the idea of this, it's an interesting proverb. The idea here is if a servant is pampered or spoiled for a long time, he'll come to expect to be treated like a son like uh, and have the rights of uh, a son. In other words, he'll forget his place and he'll become a danger to the son or to the heir in the ancient culture. For us, you know, we move it over into our environment. We don't have slavery in our country anymore. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Um, and so the whole servant, owner, all of that aspect of pa- passages of the Bible uh, don't apply to us. The closest thing they apply to us is the employee-employer um, situation. And so... Uh, it basically communicates to us that it's a rare employee who can enjoy a close personal relationship with the boss and then still keep their edge as an employee. Uh, most often they will start to think they, because of the relationship, deserve preferential uh, treatment and, uh, and it become, becomes complicated then. And so in employer-employee relationships, the employer should keep things well-defined in order to avoid incorrect expectations of 
on the part of the employee. An angry man stirs up strife, certainly does. And a furious man abounds in transgression. So another warning against anger, another warning against having a hot temper. Well, there must be a lot of that going around, huh? For before I knew the Lord, I had a hot temper. Really hot temper. It's the Irish. I blame it completely on that. Tom was probably the same way and all that. The the Lord knows where we, he knows where we live. And uh, he knows what we need to hear. And so there's warning against anger, the warning against the hot temper. uh, That kind of person always stirs up trouble among other people, bad influence on others. And he stirs up all kinds of sin in himself. He only harms himself uh, by harming other people and all the cursing and swearing and insulting and being rude that goes with all of that. A man's pride will bring him low always. Pride always leads to a humbling. Just let me have a quick show of hands here. How many of you have ever been lifted up in pride and had it not End with the Lord humbling you out of that condition. Just a quick hands. In other words, just raise your hand if you're massively lifted up in pride here tonight and uh, never. Just for the... T- oh, almost saw a hand. She, she was moving her hair. Oh, man. All right. For the sake of the CD, no one raised their hand. No, we know for a fact that whenever we get lifted up in pride, even just a little bit, boy, does God know how to humble us. But boy, does it feel good. And boy, does it protect us from a lot of danger because we'll do dumb things under the influence of, of pride. And so uh, honor, uh, conversely, honor will always come to a humble person. They won't have to seek it. Uh, as he says, the humble in spirit will retain honor. It will just come their way because God resists the proud, the Bible says, James, and he uh, gives honor uh, and grace to the humble. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. You're going to join in with a gang or you're going to join in with uh, a, a criminal. He swears to tell the truth, but reveals nothing. And so here you have a warning against, uh, you know, throwing our lot in with a, with a criminal or with a thief. And the warning is simply because crime doesn't pay. Sooner or later, criminals end up getting caught. It's always interesting. You uh, Sometimes you can Google it and just say, um, uh, stupidest criminals ever. And then you'll just see where they broke into a house and uh, had their pockets loaded up with stuff but decided to have a glass of milk and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and and then fell asleep at the table, you know, until the police arrived. (laughs) Listen, get a good night's sleep before you go out and burglarize a home. I don't know what, isn't there a book like this on basics, like Thieves 101, but... Um, but sooner or later, you, you know, that's why most crimes get solved. You, you leave that opening. And so crime doesn't pay. It never has. And uh, when a criminal ends up getting caught and you are his partner, then you end up getting caught as well. So it's just crazy to join with such a person or that kind of a gang. The second half of the verse refers to the principle that's found in the law of Moses. It's recorded in Leviticus chapter 5, uh, verse 1, and that is when a person was brought to trial and they were um, kind of uh, examined related to their crime, if they didn't have a, f- a plead the Fifth Amendment. Uh, so under the law of Moses, when you were asked something to clarify a situation, you were required to answer those questions. And if a person did not answer those questions, then they were automatically assumed to be guilty of what they were being tried for. And so the idea here is your criminal buddy gets caught, he goes on trial, he, because the context is Jewish here, and he goes on trial and he doesn't uh, kind of 
you know, expose you or tell on you, but the fact that he won't say anything uh, implicates him and it implicates you as well, and you get caught with uh, being guilty uh, also. So it's a lose-lose situation. Uh, Steer clear, but don't partner with a thief or with any criminal. The fear of man brings a snare. Fear of man's always a trap, isn't it? But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And so the fear of man is a trap because all of my, it means that my actions are not being directed by the Holy Spirit, but I'm doing what I'm doing supremely because I'm worried about what other people will think about me. And so I fear man, I fear people more than I fear God. And, and it always ends up of being a trap. The solution to the fear of man is to trust God, the proverb tells us, and the way that we express our trust of God is just to obey him uncompromisingly. So let's say you're here tonight and you're a person where you say, you know, I'm just a people pleaser. I just fear people. I just, I want everybody to love me. I want everyone to think that I'm great and and I'm trapped by this continually. What's the solution to this? And the solution is to trust God. You say, well, that doesn't help me a lot. What, I mean, let's, where does the rubber meet the road on that? Trust God. What does it look like? Just obey his word in any circumstance that you find yourself in. And you will find that as you please God, sometimes you won't please other people. But in pleasing God... Each time you do that and somebody else gets their feathers ruffled a little bit or it hurts the relationship a little bit or whatever it might be, um, active obedience by active obedience, it frees you from the fear of man, which is a trap. So just obey God. Maybe you've experienced this as a Christian in Modesto and the surrounding area. All you have to do is just obey God's commandments for people to discover that we are a different group of people and that it gets people's attention. We don't have to, like, rent a plane and have a banner go across or some do something crazy in order to get people to take notice of the fact that we're Christians or that We're part of the kingdom of God. All we have to do is obey the Lord's word. And as we do that, one of the consequences of it is it frees us from the fear of man. And so the fear of God is always the, uh, keeps us free from the fear of man. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. So it's our uh, tendency naturally to try and solve our problems by going to the person who's in charge, who's at the head of this company, who's at the head of this department. I want to talk to them, and we begin to think that uh, all of our problems can be solved by going to the, the most powerful human being that we can think of. And uh, then when we get in front of them, sometimes we'll kowtow to them in order to curry their favor. But the proverb reminds us that God is the solution to all of our problems and that justice comes from him. And so the idea is that he will never, ever make a bad decision in our life. And he will always do what is just and what is right. All the people that we think, these, this is the person who can solve my problem, that can save my life and fix my life, uh, they're, they're just people. And they make as many mistakes as anybody else. Uh, trust in God, not in man. And, of course, a trust in God. The greatest expression of my faith in God is prayer. greatest expression of my dependence upon God is prayer. And so to take my needs to God uh, first rather than running to the first person that comes to my mind and say, if I can just get a hold of them, they can fix this for me. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. So another contrast between the righteous and between uh, the wicked, and it's interesting to realize that to the same degree that the righteous man considers the wicked man to be a, an abomination or a, 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 um, a bad thing and a bad influence for 
uh, a nation or for a family or for, uh, in society in general. Interesting to realize that the wicked man feels the same way about the righteous. That's the kind of hard to believe. So you mean to tell me they think I'm as big a problem as I think they are in this country? And the fact of the matter is, is that that's the case. And just because, and that's why it talks about here, the, the wicked, their heart is that dark. It isn't that they, they know that they're wrong and they know that we're right. They feel guilty about it. And way deep down, they respect us about it. There are a lot of people that just detest the righteous for being upright. And uh, why is that? And, and why do the, you think about, why do the wicked reject Christ, the ultimate righteous one? Jesus spoke, and when he was talking to Nicodemus, he spoke the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to talk about those who will not come into the light because they love darkness. And I'm convinced that one day when we stand up in heaven and there is that white throne judgment, not for Christians, but for those that have rejected Christ, it will be a very awesome um, scene that will be there that when people stand before Jesus and give an account for the rejection of him because he will judge at that point, and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that when ultimately it's exposed in each person's life, the reason for their rejection, that it will not be, you know, I had this theological uh, thing that was a little bit difficult for me or I was confused about this or um, this intellectual, you know, stumbling block that I had, it will all come down to darkness. Now there was some sin that the God of the Bible forbids that I did not want to give up even for the sake of being saved and being in eternity for heaven, in heaven for eternity. And that's the way that it is. The, the, the love of darkness, the hatred for the righteous, even for Jesus himself. So we'll stop there tonight. We'll pick things up next time in chapter 30. And uh, 30 and 31 become something very, very different as, as the book of Proverbs closes out. And in some respects, it's um, even my favorite part of, uh, of the book, and maybe it is yours as well. Let's have the worship team come forward, and we'll spend the remainder of our time getting a chance to uh, worship the Lord a little bit more and Give him praise and give him glory and allow anything in the passage here tonight that he might have spoken to us to go a little bit deeper in our heart or anything that we need to just actively respond to between him and us. Yes, Lord, I am lacking in self-control. I pray that you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit right now and let that mark my life or mark this relationship or whatever. We've looked at so many different things here tonight. So let's worship the Lord.